Welcome to the Fullness Church Weekly Podcast. At Fullness, we value the Bible and believe it is critical to teach it clearly, remaining true to its central focus of hearing and living the transforming news about Jesus. Our hope is this teaching will do just that. Let me pray for us to begin. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome today as we continue our series in 1 Timothy together. I get to talk about the text that says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. <laughs> Bart gave me this assignment. Um, I'm here, and he's conveniently in Africa. <laughs> Let's just say all these are disclaimers that must be set up front. And of course, anything I say, I don't know, Bart, you're probably not watching live, but correct any and every theology that needs to be corrected when you get back. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate a lot of the things Bart said last Sunday when he talked about entrusting me with this responsibility. Um, you know, I, I really hope is that wasn't misplaced trust. Um, I, 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 I really mean that. I, I, I honestly, I don't want to let Bart down. If I can just let be a little honest with my own humanity, and um, and I don't want to let God down. Um, and it's his mercy that I need most if and when I speak wrongly today. So let me say that up front. I don't consider myself to be in any way the authoritative voice on this topic at all. This sermon does not end the debate uh, on women in ministry and what it looks like. So let me just say all of that humbly up front. Um, so before we jump into our text today in First Timothy, let's talk a little bit about how we see women leading in the Bible. Um, in Micah 6, verse 4, God says through the prophet, For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Of course, below Moses, um, Miriam was still a great leader in the Exodus movement. Um, no one questions uh, that Samuel was the spiritual leader of the nation. Samuel the judge, and that before he anointed Saul as king, he judged all of Israel. No one questioned that Samuel exerted leadership and authority over both women and men. Why should Deborah be seen any different than Samuel? She judged all of Israel and functioned as their prophet. By all accounts, Samuel and Deborah functioned as the leader of the nation and the spiritual leader of the nation, Deborah in her time and Samuel in his. We see other female prophetesses in the Old Testament. Huldah is an example of one. Um, and she, Huldah was sought out by a man, but not just any man, by the high priest for the word of the Lord. And it's interesting that her prophetic word is actually based on the biblical text of Deuteronomy. Can a woman comment on scripture in the presence of a man? It would appear so. And it's actually the humble response to the word of the Lord through Huldah that leads Israel and Josiah to the national revival and turning of Judah back to the Lord. So while prophecy should be distinguished from a biblical teaching, like a, a teaching from the Bible, I think we should be clear about that, 
Um, at the same time, prophecy is a learning experience for those who hear. See 1 Corinthians 14.31 on that. Therefore, prophecy has a teaching component to it at some level. Uh, Craig Keener, well, I'll say this in just a moment. You know, in reference to our text today in 1 Timothy that I'm coming to, some have suggested that a biblical teaching is authoritative, but a prophetic word isn't authoritative. And, you know, Craig Keener has said, it's hard to get more authoritative than thus says the Lord. I mean, at some level, there's authority behind that, right? Um, So if women are allowed to stand in front of a man and say, thus says the Lord, then why can't a woman stand in front of a man and say, thus says the Bible? The Spirit falls at Pentecost, right? 120 men and women are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin declaring the mighty works of God in languages they did not know, at least in a dozen, maybe more languages to those who've gathered for the Feast of Pentecost there in Jerusalem. Um, You know, sons prophesying, daughters prophesying, God's Spirit poured out on male servants and on female servants, and Peter stands up and says, this is it! This is what the prophet Joel said would happen. God pouring out his Spirit on all flesh. And the Spirit doesn't appear to be a respecter of gender. There are the outpouring of the Spirit. And I personally, I don't see um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit listed in 1 Corinthians 12 or in Romans 12 as being gender specific. So, let's move on. Um, we have a, um, a woman in the book of Acts named Priscilla. She's named Prisca in the epistles, same, same person. She was the wife of a man named Aquila. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila were both uh, tent makers, and so Paul and them uh, worked together a lot because Paul was also a tent maker and planted churches together. Um, we read in Acts 18, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They taught him. Um, It's really interesting. So at the time, uh, whenever a a man and woman, maybe a husband and wife, were ever mentioned together, always, always, um, you see the man's name mentioned first. Kind of like when you're at a wedding and someone says, I introduce to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. Gabriel Hughes. It was always the case. The man came, and then after the man came the woman. But in four out of the five times in the New Testament that Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned together, Priscilla is mentioned first. It's so weird, it's so irregular, that scholars estimate that There's got to be something going on here. It's probably the case that Priscilla was actually the more gifted of the two, more gifted than her husband, Aquila. And when her teaching ministry is in view, she's always listed first, which again, is just bizarre for the time. In Romans 16, verse 6, uh, we have a mention of this woman named Junia and probably her husband, Andronicus. And it says, let me see, my clicker is not working here. There we go. Uh, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, 
They are well known among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Again, probably a husband and wife, ministry couple, Andronicus the man, Junia the woman. Um, I mentioned this verse a few weeks ago, or a month or two ago, that some translate it well known to the apostles, um, meaning Andronicus and Junia are not themselves apostles, they're just known by the apostles. But as I've studied it more, almost everybody, almost no one holds that view, actually. Almost everyone translates it this way, known, known, well-known among the apostles, because that makes the best sense of the Greek syntax in translating it. So what that means is that Junia was an apostle. Now, a lot of people will push back um, and say, well, okay, well, fine, maybe Junia was an apostle. But that doesn't mean she's an apostle in the sense that Peter and Paul were apostles, um, the, a better translation of apostles here is church planters, to which I would say, okay, fine. Junia and her husband were planting churches together. Um, I've planted a church. I did a fair amount of leading <laughs> when I planted that church. Um, so at some level, Junia is doing a lot of leading, I would imagine, even if she's not a, a top apostle. Um, so, co-laborers and fellow workers is a phrase Paul will use repeatedly in the New Testament. And when he refers to someone as a co-laborer, fellow worker, he's referring to those who are engaged in church planting and establishing churches. Um, he calls Timothy his co-laborer, co-worker. He, in a passage that is explicitly about planting churches, I planted, Apollos watered, he calls Apollos um, a co-laborer. Titus called a co-laborer in planting churches and establishing churches in the island of Crete. Well, he also calls women co-laborers, which is fascinating. I entreat Yodia and Syntyche, both women, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, co-laborers. Um, Paul in Romans 16, verse 3, will call Priscilla and Aquila co-laborers as well. These are probably church planners. Okay, so let's move to 1 Timothy 8 through 15. Um, I'm going to read the text to you, so just listen to it. Paul says in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 2, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, let's walk through this text. Y'all excited? Bart, where are you? All right, verse 8. He begins talking to the men. I'd love to have talked through verses 1 through 7 because they are important for understanding this passage, but I just don't have the time. I'm packing so much in. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
You heard Bart talk last week about how there, it, there's these vain discussions going on in the church over the law, and Paul's saying, hey, please don't come together and just argue and quarrel and fight over these things, probably matters of scripture. Um, I'd rather you come together, and when people see you, they see men praying, <laughs> lifting up their hands and praying and leading the church in prayer. Um, verse 9, he then shifts to women, and he says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Okay, so Paul mentions modesty. Paul also mentions costly attire. Um, so if a wealthy woman comes into the church and she's wearing these clothes that few people in the church could afford, then what she's doing is she's highlighting class distinctions that defined Ephesian society. And Paul's saying, please, don't do this. Um, it's interesting, class distinctions aren't reinforced by clothing in the way that they once were. I remember uh, the time that Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg uh, first appeared to a, you know, a, a chance to you know, pitch investments and in stock to potential investors, and he shows up in a hoodie. And, uh, of course, he's one of the wealthiest men in the world. And the truth is this, is that clothing just doesn't reinforce class distinction, at least in the same way that it once did. 2,000 years ago, you could just glance in someone's direction and know exactly where they fell in society based on the clothes that they could afford and that they were wearing. You know, Jordan will get compliments on her outfits, and guess what, guys? 90% of the time, her entire outfit's from the thrift store. <laughs> like, almost all the time. Um, I asked her, like, can I share that? She's like, oh, yeah, I'm proud of that fact. Um, so... You know, the deeper principle for us, I think, is this about not wearing costly uh, clothing, expensive clothing, is to be careful that we don't do or say things that reinforce class distinctions in the church, because in Christ, there's neither slave nor free. Um, it is interesting. Um, about seven years ago, a New Testament scholar named Gary Hogue came out with this fascinating insight. So he read this ancient work by an citizen of Ephesus named Xenophon of Ephesus. This is the stuff I geek out about. I know I'm weird, okay? Um, and so this guy, Xenophon, he wrote this work around 50 AD. And Paul was ministering in Ephesus for about two and a half years between 52 and 54 AD. So this work by Xenophon is basically a contemporary work with Paul's time in Ephesus. Um, and What's fascinating is that Xenophon talks about this particular hairstyle that was popular and trendy at the time in the city that 1 Timothy is written to. And this hairstyle involved women braiding their hair and matting it with gold and ornamentation. Uh, but what's interesting about this braided hairstyle is it wasn't just um, trendy. It actually was done as a show of piety and worship and devotion to the chief deity of the city, Artemis. That's what it was done for. And so what Paul is probably doing here when he says, um, don't have braided hair, is he's probably saying, hey, uh, women who've come into the church, who've accepted Jesus Christ, I want to see a clean break between your former life as an Artemis worshiper, which every Ephesian woman was, and your new life devoted to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's probably doing here. And I remember telling Jordan that one time, and she was like, that makes sense. 
always thought Paul just hated braided hair. <laughs> so we have a little more clarity on this now. Um, so Artemis. Artemis was the chief deity of Ephesus. Ephesus was a massive city, uh, the fourth largest in the Roman Empire, only after Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. It was basically a Wall Street of its time because people would come from all over the world to the Artemisian, her grand temple, which one ancient historian described as four times larger than the Parthenon. It was, one of, it was the second wonder of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And um, Artemis protected the wealth of the kings of the earth, which is why they would come there. She was the goddess of the hunt. She was the goddess of chastity and childbearing. And not only that, but we find that the Christian community came into tension with the Artemis worship in Ephesus. We find that in Acts 18. So Paul, he spends you know, two and a half years, which is a long time, by the way, for Paul to stay in one place, planting uh, the church in Ephesus. And signs and wonders follow his ministry. That's where his handkerchief literally heals people. I mean, he's so anointed. And preaching in the synagogue, they kick him out of there, and he's just preaching everywhere. Signs and wonders follow him. So many people come to Christ that they literally like gather their magic books and have this big book burning, burning all their magic books. Um, and it creates a, quite a stir. So that even, you know, so the idol makers who are making idols, and particularly idols of Artemis, are losing business. So in Acts uh, 19.23, we read, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Those are the followers of Jesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all Asia, that's the province of western Turkey, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. She's also known as Diana, her Roman name. Y'all know how long they cried out this, this cry? Two hours. They just scream, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul leaves Ephesus, and guess who he leaves in charge of the church in this city? You got this, Timothy. See you, buddy. All right, so let's come back to the passage. Verse 11, Paul tells Timothy, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The Greek word in this verse for learn is associated with the noun form, of this word, which is learner, the word for disciple. So Paul's encouraging women to embrace their discipleship to Jesus Christ, something we should all celebrate. And he talks here about the Christian virtue of quietness. Now, it's important to note that Paul has just told the church in uh, Ephesus, told Timothy to call the church in Ephesus to embrace a quiet life. So the noun for quiet in verse 11 is feminine, but the same noun is masculine in verse 2. 
when he calls them to pursue a quiet life. And this is something that Paul will do actually as a rule in the churches that he pastored, encouraging Christians to embrace a quiet way and demeanor. And to aspire, he says, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. Paul clearly believes that the church should be seen as ones who are you know, living a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, as we see in verse 2 of this chapter. In other places, the same thing. And as we're praying for all people, as he says in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 2, he believes that's how people are going to come to know Jesus and come to a knowledge of the truth, which is a bit ironic coming from the guy who started a riot <laughs> in Ephesus, interestingly. So, the Christian virtue of quietness he puts before them as he does the Christian virtue of submission. Um, Paul's concerned that the level of quarreling and arguing among the men is going to affect the church's witness. Um, and in contrast to that, he calls them all to a peaceful um, way of life and prayerful. Now, in Hebrews 2.8, we have this, I use this as an example of submission, kind of in referring to, uh, to Jesus. Now, I'm putting everything in submission to him. He left nothing outside his control. If I'm submissive, that means I'm releasing my will for power, my will to control. And although Jesus was the son of God as a boy, he was submissive to his parents, Mary and Joseph, and returned with them to Nazareth. Um, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Paul will tell the Ephesian church in his letter to them. Wives, submit to your husbands. We read several times in the New Testament. Slaves, submit to your masters. Submit to, God, uh, submit to pagan rulers and authorities, we're told. Like, are you kidding me? Yes, submit to Nero. I mean, literally, he was on the throne. Submit to rulers and authorities. And of course, we're to be in submission to God. In Hebrews uh, 12, 9 and 10, let's see, my sleep thing keeps going off. It says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject, submissive, to the Father of, all, of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Oh, that we would be a people submissive to God. And that... If my will for control comes into conflict with sharing in his holiness, let the Lord find a submissive soul before him. We would embrace submissiveness. Submission is an important um, Christian virtue. I don't want to create any idea that submission is somehow something we've graduated from. Paul's calling these women and 1 Timothy 2.11, uh, to be submissive. And I think probably primarily submissive, submissive to God's word, which they're learning. And maybe um, secondarily submissive to the church leaders from whom they're learning the word of God. By the way, if I'm glued to my notes today, which I kind of am, it's because I want to avoid as many careless words as possible. <laughs> words that I'll regret. Um, so... But women, and this is important, women aren't the only ones encouraged to be submissive to godly leaders in the New Testament. Men and women are to be submissive to godly leaders. 
So in 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter will tell uh, the church to be submissive, to submit to the elders of the church. Paul sends a ministry team to Corinth, and he says, be subject to them, Corinthians. In Hebrews uh, 13, 17, we read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So if it's the case that all believers, men and women, are to be submissive in God's church, then why does Paul single out women here in this text? Why indeed? That is the question, right? Is there something going on here in the church of Ephesus that would prompt Paul to encourage women in particular to embrace the Christian virtue of submission that, of course, men are encouraged to embrace as well? In other words, are there wealthy women in this church, those who he's already addressed, who can afford this costly attire, who are trying to assume positions of teaching and leadership over men before they've been properly discipled? Or is it the case that Paul is giving a universal statement that it is simply wrong for a woman to ever exercise authority over a man in the church, whether in first century Ephesus or in 21st century Birmingham? These are the questions before us in this text. So, here we go. Um, now, I want to say, and this is important, it's, it's very important to remember that nobody can say, well, my view takes 1 Timothy 2 at face value. Everyone's trying to make sense of this text. Everyone is. Um, Sarah Sumner points out that a straightforward reading, a face value reading of 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, endorses several unbiblical teachings. First, that a woman can be saved Uh, that women are saved by the blood of childbearing rather than the blood of Christ. A straightforward face value reading of the text would would have us believe that. That women are to receive instruction without practicing spiritual discernment. Just be quiet, listen, and submit to the things you're learning. Right? What about the Bereans who were noble-minded and asked, are these things true in the scriptures? A face value reading would have us believe that women, unlike men, are not to wear gold wedding rings. (laughs) That men, unlike women, are to raise both hands when they pray. And I'll add a face value reading of this text would have us believe that Adam's not a transgressor, right? So all of us are asking, we can't just take this text at face value. Actually, nobody can. We have to dig a little deeper and ask, what's going on here? Why is Paul saying what he's saying? What is he getting at in this text? Okay, verse 12, the big one. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Do you guys know where it is that Priscilla taught Apollos more accurately about the way of Jesus? In Ephesus, Priscilla, a woman, taught Apollos, a man, in Ephesus, the very place these words were written, right? So again, No one can take this verse at face value. There's something we have to understand and think deeply about with this text. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. Um, So, uh, Sarah Sumner points this out really well when she says, quote, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. There's no way to interpret this verse at face value unless we're ready to say, It is sinful for a man to learn about God from a woman. 
Of course, most of us hold a more modified view, but that's the point. We hold a view that differs from a straightforward reading. We say, for example, that this verse restricts women from teaching the Bible, quote, with authority to men, quote, publicly at the main church service in a pulpit on Sunday morning. In other words, we add extra phrases to the biblical text in order to make sense of the verse. Specifically, we add the part about women being limited on Sunday mornings because at any other time of the week, most of us welcome women's teachings. It's tough. Uh, The simple fact is that men do learn about God from women. I learn about the Lord from my wife. Um, I've always read and heard incredible biblical wisdom from women over the years, especially my mom. And not just when I was a little child under her care. As a 37-year-old man, I'm still learning about God and the Bible from my mom. Um, I don't know any men who turn off the radio when a woman comes on talking about a verse or a passage of Scripture. I mean, you kind of wonder, what would Paul have said if he lived in this day and age? Um, Would he have placed a ban on men reading books written by Christian women? Would he have placed a ban on men listening to podcasts hosted by Christian women? Um, or podcast episodes when Christian women come on to talk about God. Um, I read five books this last year written by Christian women, and I dare say they taught me many things about God and the Bible in their writings. Obviously, we heard a sermon recently from Melissa Hawkins at our first Wednesday service on bearing one another's burdens, and it was excellent for those who were here. I asked Bart about this, about women preaching and teaching, and he said that we understand uh, women preaching and teaching here at Fullness to do so under the authority of the elders. And in that sense, they are blessed and covered to teach and preach in this company here. Uh, That doesn't just go for women, though, by the way. Anyone who teaches or preaches here does so under authority, men or women, myself included. Every single time I preach to you, I do so at the request and blessing of an elder and senior pastor of our church, Bart Brookins. So you see, everyone, men or women who teach here, again, myself included, do so under authority. And that's how we here at Fullness uh, believe that women can teach and preach in mixed company. Um, As Colossians 3.16 would have us remember, all Christians are to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. So then what do we do with this text? What is Paul getting at when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or preach or exercise authority over a man? Well, here's what I think is important to see. This is my take, and and many others, but is that there seems to be a connection between teaching done by people in a position of authority, right? So, of course, those two themes of teaching and authority are connected in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. So teaching and authority are connected in that verse. But that's not the only place in 1 Timothy that teaching and authority are connected. We find, um, for example, that Paul will say uh, that elders are to, um, in the ver- almost the very next verse, actually, Paul will begin talking about qualifications for overseers and elders, clearly positions of authority, and say that they should be able to teach. 
in chapter 5 of this letter. He'll talk about elders who labor in teaching and preaching. Again, teaching and preaching done by those in places of authority and leadership. And of course, the senior leader of the church, uh, Timothy, is told, until I come, devote yourself, Timothy, to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So there does seem to be a close connection between teaching done by those specifically as elders, overseers, in positions of authority. Um, the, tra- the, the traditional translation of 1 Timothy 2.12 usually sounds something like, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Um, in other words, is Paul saying that um, women should be prohibited from senior leadership positions in the church? Is that what Paul's saying? And that may very well be exactly what Paul's saying. I think a, a very strong case can be made for that. That he's not saying... Women can never preach or teach a man in any context, he's saying, as senior leaders in the church. Again, I think that's how Bart would understand it as well. Um, Now, here's the challenge with that. Um, The normal word for authority, and I know this is getting a little teachy, y'all. Please forgive me. Uh, The normal word for authority in the New Testament, the New Testament was written in Greek, is the word exousia. Exousia is used as expansively as the English word for authority. So we read about the devil's exousia, God's exousia, the exousia of kings, the exousia of the church, the exousia to cast out demons. It's just, it, can, it just depends on its usage and context, how exousia or authority is used. Paul doesn't use the normal word for authority in 1 Timothy 2.12. It would have been really helpful if he had, because we'd have better clarity. He uses a word he only uses one time that's actually only used one time in the entire New Testament, and it's the word authentane, which comes from the Greek verb authenteo. And when we look at how this word is used, we can't look at the New Testament because it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. So anytime a word appears one time in the New Testament, what translators have to do is they have to look how it's used outside the New Testament in ancient Greek literature at the time to get a better sense of what the word can mean. And translations that fit the bill uh, and that are put forward for this verse vary kind of mostly along these lines. I do not permit a woman to teach or to dominate a man. I do not permit a woman to teach or to compel a man. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Or I do not permit a woman to teach or to flout authority over man. More so than authentane, or sorry, more so than exousia, authentane often carries a more negative use of authority. So here's the challenge, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. It could be a, a neutral use of authority, in which case we'd look at the third translation there. Um, so the question is this, is Paul condemning the attempt of some wealthy women to exercise abusive or domineering use of authority over men? If so, then this prohibition on women teaching and having authority might be specific to a situation. The situation that Timothy's pastoring in, rather than the timeless command that extends to all women across all time and all space. And the question is, what translation best fits the context, as is always the case? And the answer to that question has a lot to do with how you understand what Paul says next about Adam and Eve.
Okay, let me just say this to recap, because this is, I think, important. Everyone agrees that women are spiritually gifted to teach and may teach the word of God, at the very least, to children and other women. No one would debate that. And many allow women to teach men in particular settings. That's not really what the debate's about. Um, The debate is really over teaching in settings um, as an authoritative leader of the church and in that community. In other words, let me boil it down. Can women be elders and senior pastors? That's really what it's about. Can women be elders and senior pastors? Um, So 1 Timothy 3, um, Paul will talk about elders and overseers. And he says of them that an overseer must be the husband of one wife. And right there, it seems perfectly clear. An overseer is a man, because you got to be a man to be the husband of one wife. The challenge is this. A strict adherence to this phrase might be a little impossible to defend on closer examination. Because, the que- so first the phrase is the husband of one man, of one wife. Um, that could be a rejection of polygamous marriages, meaning you can't have more than one wife. Or it could be, and I think this is probably more likely the case, that it's actually prohibiting men who've been divorced from being overseers, and there's question over that. But in either case, it's a married man, right? Okay, well, we have to ask ourselves the question, what to do with this, because (laughs) by this standard, the Apostle Paul, who is unmarried, has just disqualified himself for being an overseer at the church of Ephesus. (laughs) Paul, who planted the church of Ephesus, right? Um, And then another challenge is this. The exact same phrase, husband of one wife, is picked up again. Oh, sorry. Let's see. It's picked up again in verse 12. I'll I'll just skip there. Where it says, of deacons. So deacons are kind of the next level down of leadership. That deacons, in verse 12, let each deacon be the husband of one wife. Exact same phrase. But... We have a proof positive example in the New Testament of a female deacon. So maybe the phrase husband of one wife isn't so airtight as it might seem at first glance. And we also know historically for the first several hundred years of the church, there were female deacons. Although we don't have very much evidence at all of female elders. So, let me go ahead and give you what Pastor Bart says. Whenever Pastor Bart is asked the question at dinner at the Brookings, what is Fullness's view on women in ministry? This is his answer. At this time, the current position of Fullness is that we believe women can do any ministry in the church, and he usually elaborates to say they can preach, they can teach, they can baptize, they can offer the sacraments, they can lead ministries, they can do outreaches, they can lead groups. However, we reserve the roles of senior pastor and elder for men. And I think that that really does stand on solid biblical ground in this text. Um, So let's look at verses 13 and 14, and it just keeps getting more and more fun. All right. To recap verse 12, I do not permit a woman to uh, teach or to dominate or exercise authority over a man, depending on which translation fits the bill. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. 
Okay, no question. Paul's pretty hard on Eve in this verse, right? Now, that said, have you all ever read Romans 5? Paul's pretty hard on Adam. Have you ever read Romans, or 1 Corinthians 15? In Adam, all die. In Christ, all we made alive. Um, Paul's pretty clear in other places that it's Adam who plunged humanity into death. Go, Adam. So, um, now given the reference to the fall here in verses 13 and 14, um, we now have a little bit more clarity of why Paul has just spoken of Jesus as the one mediator between God and man in verses 5, right? I didn't read that, but you can glance down at it. Notice what he says in verse 5. Mediator, not mediator between God and women, mediator between God and man. So clearly, Paul does see Adam as a transgressor in need of reconciliation and mediation, and they both need a ransom, verse 6, of course, through the death of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said elsewhere, Paul uh, lays the blame for the fall at Adam's feet. Read Romans 5. He's not easy on Adam there. Um, Here, he lays the blame at Eve's feet, right? Um, He does something similar in in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. And it's actually a little bit ironic and a little funny to me. Because when you read the Genesis fall story, that's what's actually happening. Nobody wants to take the blame, right? God says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The woman, the woman you gave me, she, she gave me the fruit, and I ate, right? And then he looks at Eve and says, What is this you've done? The serpent. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Right? At least Eve can acknowledge that she was deceived. At least Eve owns that much. Adam doesn't own anything. (laughs) All right. Well, the traditional interpretation of these verses is basically this, simply. Eve was created second, not first, meaning the second should not have authority over the first. And Eve, unlike Adam, was deceived, meaning that women aren't supposed to teach men because women are more easily deceived. So that's the the typical traditional interpretation of these verses. And honestly, I don't say this in jest. Um, We should acknowledge that by going all the way back to creation in the fall, Paul seems to be basing his prohibition in verse 12 on something far more ancient than on whatever is going on, on the ground in Ephesus. And that's, I think, a point worth acknowledging. It's a fair point. At the same time, it's a little bit challenging to make sense of Paul's argument. Because true, Adam was formed before Eve, but the birds of the air and the beasts of the field were formed before Adam, and yet clearly the man and woman are called to exercise dominion over them. And while it is true that the conversation partners were Eve in the serpent. Um, Adam didn't, Eve didn't go get Adam. We actually learn from the Genesis narrative that Adam was with Eve. So at some level, Adam was deceived too. So at face value, this text seems to say that women should not teach men because Eve was deceived and led Adam astray. But if a propensity for deception plagues female teachers, then we shouldn't stop at men. In other words, women shouldn't be teaching anybody. 
right? Because otherwise we're essentially saying it's not okay for women to teach men because they're more easily deceived. But it's okay for women to teach children and deceive them and to teach women and deceive them, <laughs> right? I mean, if this is an airtight truth that women are just simply much more gullible and easily deceived, then they really shouldn't be teaching children and other women either. Interestingly, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul again mentions that it was Eve who was deceived. But there, he uses Eve's deception as a cautionary tale to the whole church at Corinth, men and women, to avoid being deceived by a false gospel, meaning we are all as vulnerable to deception as Eve. Okay, verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The question immediately becomes, who's she? Right? So, who is she? She will be saved through childbearing if they continue through faith, love, and holiness. So, is she the woman? Is that who Paul's referring to? The woman who desires to teach or dominate or exercise authority over a man? Is that the she? Maybe. Or is the she just all women? Because he moves from she to the, the singular she to the plural they. Is he just referring to all women will be saved um, through childbearing? Or, and this is also a very interesting possibility, or is she Eve? I mean, in context, the closest woman being referred to is Eve by name in verse 13, and Eve is the woman in view in verse 14. And if that's the case, then what we're to think of is it's clearly talking about the fall, the first sin, um, and that God said over Eve that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And given the fact that we're talking about the fall here, it makes the most sense to interpret salvation, saved, as the salvation and eternal life accomplished by Jesus Christ, which, of course, is to fix the fall. And in, in that sense, Eve is saved through childbearing in spite of her transgression, given that through her will come the seed who's going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent, Jesus Christ. Um, it's not at all clear. It, I would say, at some level, maybe all are in play, <laughs> Uh, because Paul does shift from the singular she to the plural they, right? It is interesting. At the same time, we know that from the Genesis mandate of chapter 1, mankind, men and women, are called to be fruitful and multiply, meaning what? Childbearing. Childbearing. And by continuing to have children, even in a fallen world, women are reclaiming the original purpose of humanity. Now, it's so interesting that at the beginning of chapter 4, we find out that one aspect of the false teaching that Timothy's having to deal with here in the church is people are going around and they're forbidding marriage. They're saying they're forbidding marriage in 1 Timothy 4, verse 3. And Paul stresses in verse 4 that God created marriage, and it's good. And so the presence of this false teaching in Ephesus of forbidding marriage helps explain why in chapter 5, Paul encourages unmarried women to get married and bear children. 
while in his letter to Corinth, he actually says that men and women, it's better for them not to get married and devote themselves fully to pleasing the Lord as an unmarried person. So, but here in 1 Timothy, Paul does seem to be championing marriage and motherhood, especially given this heresy of forbidding marriage. He really wants to drive that home. Marriage is good. Childbearing is good. At the same time, given what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he clearly believes that unmarried men and women who never bear children can live a very pleasing life devoted to Christ. Again, this is why it's important to understand the context of each of the letters, because he's addressing marriage in different ways, given the context of what's on the ground in each of these churches. Okay, are y'all still with me? (laughs) All right, all right. Um, Let me give the Artemis option on this text. Okay, here we go. Um, So, the parallels between what Paul says here and the religious climate of Ephesus, at the very least, are very interesting. I don't know that they tell us exactly for sure what Paul means, but they're very interesting, to say the least. So, for example, Paul says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Well, in the Artemis mythology, which everyone in Timothy's church knows, everyone, they've grown up hearing all this, in the Artemis mythology, Artemis was born first, then her twin brother Apollos, thus emphasizing a superiority of women over men in the Artemis mythology. Eve, the name Eve, literally means mother of all living. One of the titles given to Artemis that everyone again in Timothy's church would have known was the exact same title, mother of all living. Paul says that they'll be saved through childbearing. Artemis was the savior of laboring women. So in the Artemis myth, um, Artemis is born to her mother Leto, and she is born first, and then um, her mother labors nine days uh, for Apollos to come. What happens is Artemis turns around and plays um, midwife to her own mother and helps her mother deliver her brother Apollos, thus becoming the, uh, the goddess of all laboring women. And then we have a heresy here in the church we know of of forbidding marriage. And Artemis was a, known as the virgin goddess, the goddess of chastity. She begged her father Zeus to make her immune to Aphrodite's arrows so that she'd never fall in love and maintain her perpetual virginity. So, as we look at this text, at some level, we can ask, is the Artemis myth at play here? And is Paul, at some level, addressing that in his prohibition? And if that's the case, it would look something like this. We already know, biblically, that there was, this is not conjecture, that there was open conflict between the Christian community and Artemis worship in Ephesus. We saw that in Acts 19. That's not conjecture. We know this. We also, I think, have a pretty good evidence that in saying, women, don't braid your hair anymore, Paul's probably saying, I want to see a clean break between your former life as an Artemis worshiper and your new life devoted to Christ. So I think he's introducing that concept already. And then the question becomes, is it the case that these women who are coming out of the Artemis worship, braiding their hair in her honor, but no longer, are they coming into the church and are they, they seem to be wealthy, they can afford costly clothing? 
Is it the case that some of these elite, wealthy women are coming in and trying to assume leadership positions over men before they've properly learned, been discipled? And Paul's saying, no, you need to be discipled first. You need to learn first. Um, And are they exercising that kind of domineering um, use of authority, trying to dominate or usurp or flout authority over a man or whatever it may be? And if that's the case, Paul might be trying to set the record straight and saying, hey, let's get the record straight. It wasn't, it was, it was, you know, Adam who was formed first, then Eve. Never mind what we hear about in this city that Artemis was born first and then Apollos. And, and let's get this record straight who the real mother of all living is. It's Eve. And the plan of redemption comes through her, through Jesus Christ. Um, and saved through childbearing could also mean this, and this is interesting at the least. Every woman in Timothy's church who's ever born a child, um, when they bore that child, they were on the birthing table, and they were crying out. They were praying to Artemis, and they were saying, Artemis, save me, deliver me, because as you know, so many women died in childbirth. They prayed to Artemis to be delivered through childbirth, and so Paul might actually be saying, in the same way he's saying, don't braid your hair in her honor anymore, don't, you don't need to pray to Artemis, women, to save you on the birthing table anymore. God's going to deliver you on the birthing table if you continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. And you may say, wait, are we saying women are just going to die if they don't um, on, the, on the birthing table? I don't want to say that, but there is a connection between the effectiveness of our prayers and our holiness. I mean, James says the prayer of the righteous man avails much. Peter says that husbands who are living in this ungodly way, their prayers are hindered because of their ungodliness. Um, so, all of this is a way of trying to understand it. I'm not coming down definitively on any of this. Let me just say that. And I want to put out this question. Is it the case that male leadership is the general pattern? This is a rhetorical question. <laughs> is it the case that male leadership is the general pattern in the Old and New Testament? I think the obvious answer is yes. I don't see any, any way that couldn't be true. Um, the priesthood in Israel was an all-male priesthood. The priests were the ones tasked with, in the Levites later with teaching the Torah. Um, and although um, Jesus did have female disciples, something that the show The Chosen does a great job explaining all 12 of his apostles were men. And I think Paul seems to assume that overseers will be men here. But not just in 1 Timothy. He says the same thing in Titus uh, in a different context, assuming that they will be men. But here's another question. Is it the case that leaders are universally men? And here, I would have to say no. Um, Deborah is a clear example of a woman who exercised leadership over men. And although below Moses, Miriam clearly exercised a lot of leadership in the Exodus movement, and I think it's fair to say that women were involved in church planting in the early church at some level. Um, So here's kind of my take on this. I'll just say, I think that churches that, like we, uh, reserve eldership, overseers, and senior pastor positions for men stand on solid biblical grounds. I think that churches that recognize an extraordinarily gifted woman 
um, and allow her to exercise leadership, um, I think that you can make a case that there are exceptions. There are exceptions biblically and historically um, where women serve in those kinds of capacities. All right. Um, there's this, I, I'm, so, I go, I'm going long, but such is the topic. <laughs> um, I, I heard the, or read this interview um, about a woman, a Chinese woman who planted 300 churches, led thousands of people to Christ, and she was interviewed and asked, what is it um, that compelled you as a woman to plant hun- literally hundreds of churches? Um, how, did you, how did you come to do this? And almost like as a secret, she kind of leaned in and said, God doesn't see me as a woman. And the interviewer was like, what? And the translator could tell she was confused, and she said, oh, oh she said God doesn't see her as a woman. How tragic that a woman who's been extraordinarily gifted and anointed by the Holy Spirit to lead thousands to Christ plant hundreds of churches, only can justify that in her heart and mind by saying, I guess God doesn't see me as a woman. I was at a, a conference one time, and the preaching was good, um, and then came another preacher. And really, the preaching was good, y'all, and Beth Moore preached, and Beth Moore preached. I mean, there was no question who the best preacher was. It was Beth Moore. I mean, I still remember the unction and the, the, the weight of the Spirit in hearing Beth Moore preach, calling us to live a life fully surrendered to God. Um, I owe much of my foundational knowledge of each book of the New Testament to a Korean-American woman named Sydney Park from Beeson Divinity School who taught a New Testament theology class that, again, most of my foundational knowledge of, of each New Testament book comes from her. Um, y'all, in the church of Iran right now, it's women who are spearheading the move of God. It's women who are preaching the gospel most effectively. It's women who are responding most. And it's women who are planting churches the most. And you say, well, that's because it's in the absence of strong male leadership. Maybe so. Maybe so. At the same time, the Spirit seems willing to use them. Jenny Allen is a preacher, and she recently was at Auburn, and she posted on her feed, last night I finished a message at Auburn, was off stage, and a student texted the pastor beside me that they wanted to be baptized tonight. So I went back on stage and asked if anyone else wanted to trust Christ and be baptized. Dozens raised their hands. So thousands of students left the area and walked to a lake in a red barn a mile away. They circled the lake, and six to ten of us were in the water baptizing hundreds. People surrounded the lake till almost midnight, hearing the stories of life change and shouting and cheering and prayer together. God is moving, and he isn't stopping. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says this, And these gifts of the Holy Spirit are empowered by one and the same Spirit 
who apportions to each one individually as who wills? As Gabriel wills, as particular leaders will, as the Spirit wills. Has the Spirit ever willed to let a woman teach or preach to men? I'm pretty sure he has. Now, at the same time, we want to honor the Word of God and what leadership looks like in the church and wrestle with these things. And we want to make sure women feel empowered to make disciples of all nations, including this nation. Amen? Amen. Well, let me invite you to the table of the Lord. And I'm going to go invite those who are serving to come forward. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. So come, all of you who have faith in Christ, and join his people in this remembrance of Jesus. Come, you who feel far from God, and you who feel near. Come, you who feel clean, and you who feel dirty. Come, you that have been broken, and you who have been healed. Come, you who have been here often, and you who have not been here very many times. Come, you who have much, and you who have little. Come, women, come, men, come, children, and know our Savior. For the sinless life that you should have lived has been lived for you by Christ. And the guilty death that you should have died has been died for you by Christ. We bring nothing to this table except faith. So come with empty and outstretched hands to receive the body and blood of Christ given for you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this teaching blessed you. If you ever find yourself in the Birmingham, Alabama area, come check us out. For more information, please visit fullness.life.